0: Um, This morning we are continuing in our series in uh, Revelation on the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, we're into the third week of that, so we've got the Church of Pergamum. So if you've got your Bible or the Bible on your phone or something, can I encourage you to open up to Revelation chapter 2 from verse 12. Um, And we've seen uh, previously that there's a bit of a structure to how the letters generally are written and given to the churches. And we see this format there where um, there's generally a a description of Jesus, which matches something from chapter 1 of Revelation. There's a commendation, so here's something that's going well. Uh, Quite often there's a complaint um, and then a correction to the complaint and then a promise. And so again, that's the sort of structure we'll be looking at this morning as we look at this letter to the church of Pergamum. So I want to read the passage to you. It'll be on the screen, but have a look along if you've got it in front of you. And um, I'm reading from the NLT version. It says this, says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven." And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Clear as mud. Yep, so we all understand what that's about, and um, we can move on. So I read that, yeah a little while ago. Uh, I'm going, what does some of that mean? What do we do with some of that stuff? Um, So let's walk through, just sort of step by step, and and see what's going on. And and to start with, is to the church in Pergamum. So Pergamum, a city that was renowned for um, just being the centre of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, In the first week, we we looked at the letter to Ephesus, and there was a bit of tension between particularly Ephesus and Pergamum as to which was the, the dominant city, the capital city, the one with the most influence. And uh, Pergamum, great emphasis on medicine and psychology. Um, People came from all over the world for physical healing. There there was a God, I I can't even pronounce his name, but um, one of of the healings that they used to come for, you would lie in this chamber and you'd have snakes just crawl all over you uh, because this God was represented by the image of the snake, which interestingly enough, the medical profession, what's the symbol for the medical profession? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, So anyway, um, I'm finding out all these little things. And uh, so this was all part of what was happening in Pergamum. Um, there was three big temples for worship of the emperor. Remember, the Roman Empire was still dominant this time. Three massive temples where emperor worship was conducted. Um, it also had the great altar of Zeus, Zeus was one of the Greek gods, the the big big head honcho, big altar there of Zeus, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, And there was a big uh, temple for Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, who was actually the favourite daughter of Zeus. So idol worship, emperor worship, and in that place, the church is present. Where if you said Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, you could lose your life. And here's this church operating in that space. So then we get to the name of Jesus, and and it says in the passage, This is the message from the one with the sharp, two edged sword. Interesting name for Jesus, the one with the sharp, two edged sword. And if we look back in Revelation chapter 1, In verse 16 we read that Jesus held the seven stars in his right hand and we know the seven stars are the seven churches and has a sharp two-edged sword that comes from his mouth. If we look at the end of Revelation in chapter 19 we see this, coming out of his mouth, talking about Jesus, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So there's a sense that the sharp two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus is a, is a piece around judgment. There is judgment through his word. There is judgment through who he is in his character. And so there's this, as we go down a bit further, we read in Hebrews that for the word of God, you probably know this passage, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the spirit and the soul, joints and marrow, judges The thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And here's this sense that the Word of God is coming as a a judgment piece because people's actions, people's lives, people's beliefs, um, everything the way people operate can be set up against a perfect standard, which is the Word of God. When we look into this a little bit further, we've just finished a, a series looking at the book of 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, you may remember this passage, but um, I'll just have it up there. So the people of God, so the church, are actually judged first. And we see here, however, if you suffer as a Christian, Peter is saying, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so aligning all this, we see Jesus through this letter to the church in Pergamum saying the, the judgment is going to start with you. You are the ones who represent me. You are the ones who bear my name. You are the ones who show the, the people around you what I'm truly like. And I want to ensure God's saying that, that you are aligned with who I truly am. And when we, when we go off track, that judgment comes in. Not, not, don't always think judgment as, as severe punishment But judgment is, I'm making a judgment call so I can realign you. I'm judging the situation. I'm putting it, so this is the standard it needs to be. Maybe you're operating here, so I'm going to judge that and say that's not how I want it to be. And can I realign you? And so we get this sense that that Jesus is doing this with this church in Pergamum. Then it goes on in verse 13 of our passage, it says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Pretty strong words. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Now, the imagery used with Satan's throne, Satan's city, we just get this sense that, that this was a city, literally a city full of people where Satan was at home where where the the dark powers of this world were running rife, and Satan and anything that was anti god was right at home in that place it was the, it was the seat of of, of power it 's nearly like you get this idea of a throne being um, just the personal seat and residence of the person who's in control of the place. And that's what it's saying about Satan. And then it mentions this guy Antipas. Um, and we know through history that this was a guy who, who lived in Pergamum. He was actually appointed by the Apostle John who's writing this letter. He's appointed by John to be the Bishop of Pergamum. And uh, he, was, he was executed by the Emperor Nero, the Roman Emperor. And pretty gruesome. So on this altar of Zeus that was there in the city, there was a massive bronze, hollow bronze bull. And so Antipas, tradition says and history says, he was arrested, accused of of being against the emperor. So he was tied up, he was placed inside this hollow bronze uh, bull and then they lit a fire underneath and he was literally roasted to death. And so this is the type of thing that was going on in the city. And so I love the fact that this guy gets a mention because John's saying to those who have remained faithful, even when you saw that stuff happen, you remained faithful. How hard would that be? And so there's some of the things that we're talking about. So then we have the commendation. The commendation in this piece is, you remain true to my name. Remember I just said that part of the Christian's role is to represent the character and nature of Jesus to the people around them. That is reflecting somebody's name. And so they remain true to that. And you have not renounced your faith. Now that's an a interesting word, faith. When, when we use the word faith, so if I if I asked you, do you have a faith? Or are you a person of faith? Um, I'm not sure what comes to mind for you. But quite often we can think that if I have faith, that means there's a certain set of things I believe to be true, therefore I have faith. But we need to go a little step further than that, because if if there's anything we think about to be true, we only really believe it to be true if it shapes our actions and our behaviour. You can say, I believe something, but if your actions and behaviour don't align to what you say you believe, you don't really believe it. And so when we're looking at this, that they have not renounced their faith, it's more than just this uh, mental assent to something I think I believe. It's this piece where it's, no, the, the faith of these people is a life actually lived out in response to who Jesus is, and what he's done, and what he's said, and, and it's following Jesus. It's being a disciple. It shapes your actions and behaviour. And he's saying to a bunch of people in this church, you have not renounced that, which is a really cool thing. But then we get to the complaint. Verse 14. But I have a few complaints against you. The first one is this. You tolerate some of those whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel? If you want to read that story, and I suggest you do, Numbers, the book of Numbers, early in the Bible, chapter twenty-two to about chapter twenty-five, tells that story. Uh, it's too much in that for me to go into that now, but I, I, can I encourage you to, to have a look at that today or, or this week sometime? And so he's saying there, there are some who's teaching, so the teaching is becoming warped, the teaching is becoming corrupt. So we've got a church of people across this city where it's really, really hard to be a follower of Jesus and then you've got people in the church who are just steering away from the truth. Maybe just a little bit, maybe little increments here and there and it's starting to influence the people who are trying to follow Jesus in this really tough environment but what they're getting from those who are teaching them is, is leading them astray. And we see that they started to act and behave like the culture around them. And what's the culture around them? R- ripened, Rampant. ripened. That's not even a word. Rampant. Uh, idol worship, emperor worship, uh, sexual immorality, because a lot of those temples where there was emperor worship and idol worship involved, uh, particularly the temple of Athena, involved just blatant, uh, sexual practices and things like that. And so some of the people in the church were going down those tracks. And And then he uh, also mentioned that some, um, in a similar way, you have some of the Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. The Nicolaitans were also mentioned in the first um, church, the one in Ephesus, where Jesus said, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And if you want to look into that a little bit, um, they were... F- following a teacher called Nicholas, who's actually mentioned in Acts chapter six. Um, And so he was voted in as one of the the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. Um, But again, his theology was a bit warped and he started to lead people astray. So you can look into that in in Acts six as well, if you want. So I think we get to the point where this raises two questions for us. And this is the part I think we that I feel God's, just speaking to us as a church today. Two, two questions rise. First one is, where do we compromise our following of Jesus with the following of the culture around us? At what points, me personally, you personally, do we compromise following Jesus by following the dominant culture around us? And as I reflected on that a little bit this week, as I was preparing this, uh, it's nearly scary to go there. If we're really honest with ourselves. Now, I say I believe Jesus is Lord. So do my actions and behavior reflect that Jesus is Lord of my life? Or do I live like I'm Lord of my life? Because the dominant culture around us says, you are the most important thing in this world. You are number one. Look after yourself. It's all about you. Just that itself, I'm going, oh, okay. I've got some work to do there. And the second question, I think, as a church, as Coast Community, but as the church, the, the, the worldwide church, where do we compromise our call to being obedient to Jesus? We can come along and meet as a group of people and do some real nice stuff that sounds good, but are we being obedient to what Jesus has called us to? You read a lot of the letters in the New Testament, particularly the letters Paul wrote, most of them are about Church communities, how, how to do life together. The one another's. You know, support one another, prefer one another, love one another, encourage one another. And too many of us can have church experiences where that's not, our, that's not the case. So even as the church, are we being obedient to what Jesus has called us to do? And so as I'm reflecting on all this, I'm thinking, what's the key here? And I'm praying, I'm going, what's the key in this for us? Us, me personally, you personally, and obedience is the word that came to me. Obedience. I don't know what what your reaction is when I say that. For some of us, that might prickle a little bit. I've got to be obedient to what Jesus said. Well, don't take it from me. Let's take it from Jesus. Here's a couple of things that just in two chapters of John's Gospel up on the screen, and and I won't read the whole thing, but some of them are in bold. He says things like this. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you love me, keep my commands. A bit further, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. A bit further, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. I like this down the bottom of this passage. And he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. So when we rely on the spirit, the indwelling spirit, that's, call it conscience, call it, Yeah, conviction, whatever. But the spirit's role is to align us with everything Jesus said to do and say. He reminds us of who Jesus is, what he's like, what his character's like, and all this is going on generally internally for us. Now it's in your thought life, it's in your heart, it's in the core of who you are. But obedience is a key. It's the key. So we go back to what we said before. People of faith, what does it mean to have faith? To have faith means you actually choose to obey Jesus in the way he calls us to live. That's what we're called to do. The next passage in in John 14 and 15, as we continue on, he says he's going to give give us peace and he says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. You are my friends if you do what I command. Verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Here's this cultural thing. Are we we stepping into the culture of following Jesus or are we stepping into the culture of the world around us? If you belonged to the world, the culture around us, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you also. And they'll treat you this way because of my name. Remember, his name represents his character and his nature. This is pretty full on. As I'm looking through this, I'm just going, this is... This is a tough teaching. Imagine receiving this letter as the church. Imagine receiving this. And so here comes the correction. Repent. Repent of your sin. He says, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them. That's those who are, who are going along with the false teaching and, and falling into the culture around them. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. I think we've mentioned enough in this church over the years that repent is not the idea of I'm saying sorry. It's changing the way you think about things. Because again, the way you think about things shapes your behaviour. The way you think about things shapes your actions, shapes your motives. So change the way you think about things. We know this passage, really popular passage from Romans chapter 12. And in verse 2, don't conform to the patterns of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renew, renew your mind. Change the way you think about things. Use the word of God, the Holy Spirit to shape how you think about life. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So here's this church in this city where it's really difficult to follow Jesus. And in the church itself, there are some people who are just staying true and they're obedient to who Jesus is. And and, and they are, even in the face of death, they are staying true and saying, Jesus is Lord. And my life will reflect that. But there's a group who are... Just getting some false teaching. They're they're falling into the the culture around them. Their life doesn't look any different to all the other people. Maybe they just go to a different type of temple. Does that ring true for any of us? I've often thought that of my life. My life looks no different to my neighbours except I go to church on Sundays. So it rings true. And then through all that, there's a promise. And this promise is, a, there's a little bit in this. So, so the promise is, to anyone with ears to hear, listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. What does that mean? Well, there's this idea, where the manna, the story of the manna, when it first appeared, was when the Israelites had come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. And this stuff would appear on the ground. Manner, the, the actual, interpret the word manna, it means what is it? What is it? Here's this stuff that's appearing on the ground every morning and it's sort of sweet like honey and it's sort of like wafer um, and it's really nice and it just keeps appearing morning after morning for year after year after year. And so God is sustaining these people, their physical sustenance, through this stuff called manna, in an, when they were in an environment that was really, really harsh. And so we get this picture of the manna that's been hidden is this stuff that God provides. It's our spiritual sustenance when we're in a culture or environment that's really, really harsh to, to stay close to God. There's this picture that that's what it could be. Jesus then takes that to a next step and he declares, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You can survive when you just invest in who I am, in my character and my nature and survive spiritually. Yeah, and then when he was tempted in the desert, in early in Matthew's gospel, chapter four, and we see Jesus in the desert and he's tempted by Satan and his response is, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we're seeing all this tied in into this letter. And so there's this, I think there's this sense that those, those battles we have in our, in our mind, where a temptation comes, or a thought comes, or we have some instinct to act a certain way, and we battle through that and we think about it. I reckon that hidden manner could be uh, this is just this picture of, of it's the Spirit at work sustaining you, encouraging you, reminding you, helping shape you so your actions and your behaviour align with who you truly are. There, there could be more in that, but I encourage you to, to have a look at that as well. And then the next part, a little bit confusing as well, each one is going to get a white stone And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. What does that mean? Look into that too. I encourage you to do that. Um, There is this sense in those days that that if you were on trial, the judge had either a black stone or a white stone. So the black stone, if you were given that, meant you were guilty and condemned. The white stone meant you were not guilty and you were acquitted. And so there's this sense that it could have something to do with that, that we are free from condemnation. And we know through Scripture that that is, is a theme that runs through the New Testament, that in Christ we are free from condemnation. The white stone could be a symbol of, of the fact that, because remember it says, to him who overcomes... So if you've lived this life, this victorious life in Christ where you've overcome sin, you've overcome its power in your personal life and you're still being transformed into Christ-likeness and you're still growing in the character and nature of God, there could be this sense that, that the name written on that is a name personal to you that reflects the journey you've gone through. And you'll understand it completely when you see it because you know your life better than anybody else. And you know what you've lived through, you know what you've gone through, you know the struggles you've had, you know where it's been hard, and Jesus gives you this name that just perfectly summarises you as the person. Could be that. Could be something else. In, um, in the end of Revelation, I'll just skip a slide um, through at the end of Revelation, it says this this is about Jesus in chapter 19. It says, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And we're going to get a name written on a stone that no one knows but us. And it could be something to do with you know, that our faithfulness, if you stay faithful in this Christian walk that God sees that he recognises that he esteems that and maybe it's a name that's just between you and God maybe this name on the stone is a a name of God that represents God and his character that again is just perfect for you I I don't know I don't know the answer one day I hope I'm going to get one of these stones I'll tell you what my name is you won't know what it means and it's all good But here's this promise, and the promise is about those who overcome. There's going to be something special where God sees you and recognises that. And it would be like this reward. I think it would be, you know, I was thinking of you know, playing footy growing up. You'd get a few trophies, and you know, I had trophies for most consistent and uh, the best back or the best something, and, and yeah, you know, that doesn't summarise everything, but it's like going to get this thing that just completely encapsulates who you are. Who knows? But at the end of all that, to those who overcome, to those who stay faithful, there will be this life with God that cannot be taken away, where he has sustained you through this earthly existence so you can be in an intimate relationship with him in in an eternal existence. No more battles to overcome, no more sin to get in the way. You're actually a new creation. And, and we finish with this little verse from Paul's writings to the Corinthians where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. That's actually worth celebrating. Let us pray. So Jesus, as we read this letter to the church in Pergamum and we look at us today as your church, as your people, as your children, I just ask that you will give us the courage to look at our lives through the prompting of your spirit, through the gentle conviction of your spirit. And in those areas where we may be reflecting the culture around us more than than the character and nature of you. I ask that you would gently just point those out to us. Give us the the boldness to step into repenting in those areas, changing the way we think about that. I love the fact that you call us to do this as community because it's so hard to do this on our own. And we can be those people who do all those one another's for each other that love and support and encouragement and as you promise to us through your word that to those who overcome you will sustain us with your manner you will sustain us through your spirit you will give us what we need when we're in an environment where it's just hard and you know what we face I don't know what that white stone really means, but I know you see us. I know you never leave us. I know you're always at work in shaping us to become more like yourself. And I know you're always at work in your creation, drawing all of your creation, every man, woman and child back to yourself. So I just thank you. For your salvation, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your love and your faithfulness. And as a church, as individuals, we just want to be those people who who reflect your name in all that we do. We ask that you would help us in that day by day, moment by moment. For your glory. Amen.